Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Chuck, a.k.a. Charles W. Chuck Bryant, a.k.a. Charles Wayne Bryant. Yeah. Named after Wayne Coyne. <laughs> no. Uh, thank you. Wait, I wasn't done. And then there's Jerry. Thank you, people who voted for us for the Webby Award. Yes, yes. We won. We won the People's Voice Award. Yeah, that's three of those for us. And a huge congratulations to uh, another podcast that we admire for winning, The Webby. Yeah. Uh, 99% Invisible. Yeah, if you heard our TED Talks episode, we interviewed Roman Mars, and he won the, I guess, panel vote. Yeah. And then we won the People's Voice vote. He's the he's the industry darling. We're the populist darlings. Yeah, as I like as when I put it on my personal Facebook page, I tagged Roman and I said, "We won the one for people's vote, and Roman won the one based on quality." <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "No, they're both quality." Yeah, he was very sweet about it. Yeah, um, I, I also want to say give a special props to Reply All, who gave us a run for our money for uh, quite a while there yeah. in the People's Voice Award. So. Uh, actually, check out all of the um, the uh, nominees. Nominees, yeah, because to to get considered for a Webby, I mean, there's a ton of podcasts out there, and to make I it know. into basically what amounts to the top five, you got to be pretty good. So yeah. hats off to everybody, and thank you again for everyone who voted for us, and congratulations again in, to Roman and 99% Invisible Crew. Agreed, we are in good company. So uh, thanks everyone. So, Crumple Zones. <laughs> <laughs> I predict this is going to be a car wreck of an episode. Terrible. It is terrible. Um, you know what I found out? That this fascinates me way more than I thought it would. Dude, totally with you. Because I'm not a car guy, as you know. No, but it's not just that. It's This is more the history of auto safety. Uh-huh. But it also has more to it. There's some physics that we can grasp involved. Very simple That physics. makes it very attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, let's kind of like big thing hit big thing, make right. a big boom. Right. That's exactly right. But uh-huh. all you have to do is switch out like force and acceleration. You sound smart. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there's a lot to it that, that there's even some nefariousness, corporate nefariousness. So I'm like, yeah, this story has everything. Sure. You know? Agreed. And you know what? This made me want to do episodes on crash test dummies for one. And then maybe even a couple of others as far like as Ralph uh, Nader. We should do one on him. Yeah. Maybe. Airbags, just the whole car safety thing is way fascinating. It really is. And to top it all off, this article was a Grabster article. So, Well, that's why I picked it. Kaboom. At this point, I'm just searching for his articles. Yeah. We and, should and just be like Grabster. More. <laughs> recommend some articles that you wrote that we should do. We've done most of them. I know. That's the problem. He needs to come back into the fray. Yeah, agreed. So sad. Uh, and we should also shout out our colleagues here at How Stuff Works with Car Stuff. Uh, Scott and Ben, mm-hmm. I'm sure, have covered this uh-huh. at some point. Yep. And if you're into this kind of thing, they have a just a treasure trove of car, very specific, detailed car podcasts. Emphasis on the treasure. Yeah. So that's Crumple Zones. If you want to know more <laughs> about it, go listen to car stuff. All right. Should we start with that little history bit? Yeah. Why not? Right? Yeah. So... um there's actually a lot of history to it. I found this really cool Museum of American History, a Smithsonian Museum. They had a like an exhibit years back. It looked like the late 90s, early 2000s. And yeah. I just went through the page. and There was this really interesting essay that they had broken up over this website. 
Um, there's a lot of weird history, but initially the idea of what caused wrecks has changed dramatically over the years. Because yeah. at first it was strictly driver error. Sure. Because the paradigm people were looking through was before you had horses and a horse could spook and bolt yeah, and yeah. run somebody down and the horse did that. It wasn't the driver. The whole idea of a horseless carriage mm-hmm. was that it was a, a, just a lump of metal that responded to the driver's commands. And so anything that went wrong, it was the driver's fault. Yeah. And it took many, many years for people to realize like, actually, no, there's some serious design flaws in cars. Right. We can actually make them safer. Right. And uh, once people figured that out, they didn't realize that the auto manufacturers had known this for decades. Yeah. And then after the public finally realized it, it took a few more decades for people to finally implement it. Yeah. And I think the the rationale for a while was, um, and it was the style of the day as well and the materials that were available at the time, but yeah. there was a notion of, well, let's build these things like Sherman tanks. And it will make people safe. Right. And what Crumple Zones proved is the exact opposite is true. <laughs> Let's build something that that crumbles and crushes right. in just the right way. Uh-huh. And that's actually much safer. And you know, it's funny. I remember when this stuff kind of came up, what, probably mid to late 90s, when people really started to show up in, um, in normal cars. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, God, they make cars so cheaply compared to how they used to. Yeah. Like, they just come apart. Now I realize, oh, they're designed to come apart. Right. Because before it was like, the car's not going to do anything, but everybody inside's going to liquefy. <laughs> yeah. Now it's like, how about we keep the people inside safe and just let the car take the brunt of the impact? Yeah. And uh, one person, uh, there are a lot of people that, that owe it to this design over the years, but one person squarely in the center is a dude named Bella. Barenyi? That's a nice name. There's a couple of uh, accents and everything. Yeah, I'm not even sure if that's right. But he was a very, very, very famous engineer and inventor uh, for Daimler-Benz. Uh, holds more than 2,500 patents. Like that is, This guy, we all owe a debt to this dude. So many more patents than either of us. <laughs> yes, 2,500 more yeah. than both of us put together. Yeah. Do you hold a patent? Nay. No, me neither. This is kind of shameful, really. At this point in our life, do you want to hold a patent? Everybody should hold at least one patent. (laughs) Well, if you could patent things like, uh, you know, stupid stuff that aren't like real, like um, Chuck's method for getting out of the grocery store in a hurry, patent it. I might actually try that. What is it? Are you gonna you say patent pending first before you describe (laughs) it? I'll just hold on to that. Okay. Or maybe I could trademark that, not patent it. No, you can patent a process. Can you? Uh-huh. Okay. Or you can just type the little trademark symbol next to everything you right. say. And it's like, back <laughs> off, everybody. So Bella, uh, Mr. Barigny, uh in 1952 had a patent. Um, it was actually the very first one, uh-huh. uh, the 1959 Mercedes-Benz W111 Fintail. You didn't Beautiful. say what the patent was for. I know. I was getting to it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Beautiful car. And it was the first car to hold uh, to have this patent pending, well, I guess it was patent holding by that mm-hmm. point, Yeah, crunch zones on the front and rear of the car. Yeah. And the whole reason was these crunch zones could be designed to absorb the impact from a crash. Yeah. And if the car absorbed the impact, then the people were less likely to absorb the impact because that impact, the force of the impact has to go somewhere. Yeah. It, it ain't going nowhere. No. And if the car is built to be rigid, the car's not going to absorb it. It's going to yeah. transfer it. 
yeah, like a, a big Ford Edsel hitting a Ford Fairlane. That's a lot of pounds of metal yeah. smashing into one another. Yeah. And the people inside aren't going to fare too well, especially back then when they were like, what's a seatbelt? Dude, not only what's a seatbelt, the earlier earlier cars had plate glass windows. Yeah, they were death machines. The the all of like the the knobs and stuff now that's like touch screen. Yeah. Before were they would stick out, so you just take one and go right through your forehead into your brain. Yeah, just get impaled. Dashboards, dashboards weren't even padded. It was a steel bar that would just take the top of your head clean off. Yeah. And then the cars ran on nuclear fuel. Basically, <laughs> it might as well. Yeah, it was amazing. I know that they've done uh, side-by-side examples these days where they crashed an old car because mm-hmm. people are like, oh, the old cars were built like tanks. And so they would do the same miles per hour for like a Volvo right. compared to like a 1957 Ford. Yeah. And, you know, the, it's obvious what happens. You just like there was a there was a point in time where the the common wisdom was you didn't wear a seatbelt even if you had it because yeah. you would prefer to be thrown from the car because it was so <laughs> deadly inside the car. And there's actually a very yeah, famous ejector seats. Pretty much, yeah. There's a famous um, uh, Reader's Digest article that really captured public opinion back in 1935. It's called Ed's and Sudden Death, and it's just like really gory and gruesome. And it's talking about like these cars are death traps. We yeah. need to do better than this. Yeah, and they weren't even going that fast back then. No. You know? All right, so these days, um, it's all proprietary, the exact features and specifics of crumple zones, uh, because these car manufacturers, uh, they have their own methods, and they don't want to share that with everyone. Makes sense. That's fine as long as they're building it. That's right. But in general, what we're talking about are frame designs where certain parts of the frame of the car bend and collapse in such a way that it keeps the people and things like the gas tank mm-hmm. uh, safe. Right. Because you don't want that gas tank exploding either, which we'll get to. Right. So let's talk about what a crash is, right? Yeah. A crash is where an object with mass traveling at a certain rate um, collides with another object. With mass. Yes. Yes. And when that happens, force is created, Right. And f- yeah, well, I was going to say, if people are saying, well, what if you don't hit a car, you're going to hit a street, you're going to tumble, you're going to hit a telephone pole. Right. There's something is going to make impact. Right. Yeah. So what, what's happening when you, when you have impact is you are technically you're accelerating, but it's every, every and logically you should just call it decelerating in the case of a crash. Yeah. But it's still scientifically, it's still accelerating whenever you have a change in velocity. Right. Okay. Um, so when you hit something in your car and you decelerate quickly, yeah. that force is transferred. Force The force is the mass times the, the rate of deceleration, mm-hmm. right? So another way to put it is how bad you're messed up equals how heavy the car is and the object it hits yeah. times how quickly and suddenly it stops. Yeah. So you can actually take force in that equation and and diminish it tremendously if you can diminish tremendously the rate of acceleration if you can make if you can extend the time it takes to decelerate and you you can understand this a lot more easily if you think about when you come to a stop slowly at a stop sign yeah. as opposed to when you have to slam on the brakes and you come to a stop uh-huh. now the next degree above that is when you hit like a a 
a pylon yeah. and come to a complete stop. So that's what an accident is. It's that transfer of force from one object to another through this deceleration, this rapid deceleration. Yeah, and in the case of a crumple zone, uh, there are two things that it's trying to do there. One is to reduce that initial point of force, initial force from that first point of contact. When you hit that phone pole or that other car right. or whatever, you want to drop that force and then redistribute that uh, away from the people. Right, right. So w- the way you drop that force is to extend the rate of deceleration. Even by tenths of a second makes an enormous impact. Like, well, that's all you have in the case of a crash. Right, you know? right. So Ed points out um, that if you take, if you change the deceleration time from 0.2 seconds to 0.8 seconds, you reduce the total force by 75%. Huge difference. Yeah, especially if you're in a car accident, like 75% less force being transmitted through the car is, that's preferable. Yeah. Right? So um, the whole point of crumple zones, the whole thinking behind them is to basically build an area that can change this deceleration, lengthen it out some, mm-hmm. so that the force it. is, yeah. yeah, and then also to kind of d- redistribute that force throughout the car so away from the passengers. That's the whole thing behind it. It makes total sense. All right. Well, let's take a quick break here, and uh, we will come back and talk a little bit about uh, how they're doing that. All right, so a car is, it, it can't be one big crumple zone. There are parts that need to be rigid. Yes. Like the, if you picture a car, picture the, the four seats. Let's just talk about a four-seater. Let's do it. I know people will be like, what about the third row? There's seven of us in here. Whatever the case, just picture a small <laughs> box where the people are actually sitting. Yeah, that's the, called the passenger compartment. The passenger compartment, that is that box. That needs to be rigid. You don't want that crumpling. You want everything before that and after that crumpling to reduce that force and that rate of deceleration. Right. So basically, you want that middle to be super strong and rigid. Exactly. You don't want delicate balance because if that crumples, the people aren't protected any longer. They're exposed to all sorts of terrible stuff. Yes. So it does have to be rigid. But again, before they made the the whole thinking was, well, just make the whole car super rigid. And the problem is, is there has to be something that's absorbing and redistributing that force. Uh-huh. Um, and that's what the crumple, crumple zone does. So they took yeah. that tank of a car and rather the whole car being that they shrunk it down to just the passenger compartment where it's really needed mm-hmm. and then made the rest of the car a big crumple zone. Yeah. And then surrounded that part with airbags. Yeah. Side curtain, front, and all that stuff. So that's what protects the people. But um, the way this article put it, man, Ed sure has a way with words. He really does. He talked about thinking of it in terms of a car crash, in terms of a budget, like a monetary budget. Mm-hmm. And that's what that force is. And everything that happens is paying a little bit of that budget. It's spending some of it. Yeah, spending some, taking away from that budget. Like, so have, like when, a- when glass breaks, when the door... You know, when anything, any kind of damage happens, that's spending a tiny little bit of that budget because that's energy. Right. And then eventually the budget's entirely spent and all the force has been distributed and the accident's over. The crash is over. That's right. Right. Um, If you can get other parts 
besides the passenger compartment and even more importantly, the passengers yeah. to distribute that force, then a hundred percent can be distributed before it gets to the passengers. Yeah. You want it to be paid down to almost nothing by right. the time it gets to you. I don't think it's, I get the impression. I don't think it's possible to distribute a hundred percent of the force. No, probably not. Because in that case, That's like the person airbags. wouldn't even, you, you wouldn't feel anything, right? Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, is that possible? I guess, could you design something to where somebody could come to a complete and sudden stop in an impact and not, not experience any force whatsoever because all of it was distributed away from the person? Is that well, even possible? Probably not. And that's the point the article makes. Probably not like a drivable, manufacturable car mm-hmm. because that's the delicate balance. They, they still have to drive and handle in a certain way and, like when you, that's what fascinates me about this is car design. You have to take all these things that are knocking heads against one another into consideration. Yeah. You know, it's got a gas tank in there. Right. Things full of flammable fuel. Right. And it's crashing into things. Like it's amazing. It's really like that delicate balance they've walked these days to make cars as safe as they are is astounding to me. So, so. There are some things that they have to trade off. Like if you have a really good um, crumple zone, a big one in front, you're going to have to do something with your engine. And you can only put an engine so much on top of itself mm-hmm. before it needs to just kind of go back toward the passenger, right? Yeah, and you can only move it back so much. The, and the problem is with an engine, an engine is one of the few things in the car, aside from the passenger compartment, that is rigid and basically immovable. Like an engine's not going to crumple and bend, it's going to transmit that force. And if that engine comes into the passenger compartment, it's going to say, hello, and transmit that force <laughs> right into the people that it runs into. Yeah. And that, I mean, I remember old car wrecks where the engine is like in the front seat, you know, where the person used right. to be. That's not a good place for an engine to and be. That's not a good place at all. No. So there are considerations you have to, you have to do in making a crumple zone. Um, like, so in that case, you would be like, well, it's likelier that the engine's going to kill the passenger by getting pushed into the passenger compartment. We're just going to have to make the crumple zone a little less. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thing, like you said, that they have to deal with is gas tanks. Yeah. Like, I never thought about that. Most cars fuel tanks are in the back mm-hmm. and this is really cool. Uh, most modern cars, when you, Getting a rear end collision. Yeah. It's designed, the rear crumple zone is designed to go up. Yeah. So that the gas tank is actually lifted up and away from the point of collision, which is usually the hood of a car behind it, right? Yeah, which happens in a fraction of a second. Right. So it's designed to do that. That's part of a crumple zone as well. And that's a huge improvement from the 70s, specifically with the Ford Pinto. <laughs> so the Ford Pinto. Ford Pinto. Man, this is, this one may even deserve a, a podcast in and of itself, but yeah. I think in like 1970, definitely the 70s, people were dying in fairly low speed rear end collisions yeah. because the Pinto's fuel tank would break and catch flame yeah. and burn people alive. Yeah, these cars were exploding in minor collisions. And then the autopsy would show they had like basically not even a bumper or a bruise. Yeah. They had just been burned to death because the Ford Pinto gas tank blew up. And Ford got caught very famously 
with some internal memos where they calculated the cost benefit of a recall yeah. uh, as opposed to paying out lawsuits for human lives. Yep. And they said the human life we're going to say is about $500,000. So if, if, you know, X number of people sue us, we'll end up probably spending 49 million. But it costs us 137 million to recall these things and actually make them safe to protect people. Yeah. So they went with the just handling lawsuits. Yeah. And it was a big deal. And finally, there, enough of a public outcry came out about it that they finally did something. Um, and I think they did recall some Pintos. And then they, they were like, oh, we'll just put the gas tank in front of the rear axle so that it's not exposed during crashes. Right. And a couple of other improvements that cost like a dollar a piece. Yeah. And they, uh, at that point, it was kind of, um, the Pinto. The Pinto was dead. Yeah, they weren't selling. No. Like hotcakes any longer. No, I mean, like, you want to get a bad name for your car, Fiery Death yeah. is a good way to do it. <laughs> there was a movie. God, what was it? It was one of the spoof movies. Oh, it was, um, it was Don't, Don't Talk, Top Secret. Was it? I was going to say she Top Secret. Barely tapped the tree. Yeah, tapped it. It was a Pinto that exploded, like, it slowed down and went, doink, and then went boom. Yeah. I didn't think it was top secret, though, so wasn't that World War II? It was an anachronism. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I'm I'm 99.99999% right. sure. That was my first uh, thing, too. My first guess. All right. So uh, not only gas tanks, but these days with these fancy-schmancy electric and hybrid cars, you got these big battery packs and you've got toxic chemicals and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you've got to protect that as well. If you, if, in the case of a Tesla Roadster, yeah. if you get into an accident, Elon Musk himself comes and pulls you to safety. <laughs> That's the level of service. Does he you give you mouth to mouth? Yeah. Oh, wow. That might be worth it. If you need it. Uh, no, in the case of a Roadster though, it is pretty neat though. Um, it's got a safety mechanism. It shuts off the battery packs, drains all the electric energy from the cables. The instant it senses an emergency. Yeah. Pretty rad. It is pretty rad. What about if your car is tiny, though? It's pretty easy if you've got a stretch limo. Sure. you got plenty of things to crumple. Yeah, crumple away. But what about like a Mini Cooper or uh, what's this thing? Smart car? Yeah, like a smart car. Um, so the Grabster says, well, let's use a Smart 2 as an example. Um they came up with crumple zones that they call crash boxes, one in the front and one in the rear. Mm-hmm. But the problem is these are extraordinarily small cars. You've seen smart cars before. Yeah. It's like the kind you could put like a giant penny in the back and like pull it backward and it takes yeah, off. Yeah, it looks like, like a McDonald's Happy Meal price. Very much, <laughs> uh, except a very, very expensive one. Sure. Um, but the smart car, it's very small. And when it does get in a crash, it does have these crumple zones, and they do do something. But they, the engineers also had to like get kind of clever too. Like for example, I think um, the transmission actually turns into a, its own crumple zone to redistribute the force. Right? Yeah, it's amazing. And um, they used the wheels and the tires. They were like, "Well, these things, mm-hmm. they're going to be getting a lot of impact right away. So why not design the wheels, the suspension, the tires uh, to?" deform and break away or even rebound and distribute that kinetic energy elsewhere. Which is pretty awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. And so, again, we should say this is proprietary stuff for the most part, but you can really let your imagination run with these things. Like, all you have to do is say, um, you know, like really high-end sports cars. They'll use, like, honeycombed structures, which give great, excellent strength under normal conditions, but uh-huh. when they're dented with enough force, they just completely give and crumple, and that force gets redistributed throughout the honeycomb. I imagine more lightweight, too. Yeah, I would guess so. Don't you think? Yeah. Uh, trains, even trains. 
uses yeah. technology. Which is pretty smart, too. What they put them on the front and rear of each car compartment, right? Yeah, each passenger car. And then when the cars just start stacking up, it just gets distributed throughout the train yeah. rather than into the people who are trying to eat their Salisbury steak. Uh, all right, well, let's take another break, and we'll come back and finish up with a little bit on uh, everyone's favorite topic of the Stuff You Should Know Army, NASCAR. Stuff you should know. So, Chuck, the Grabster mentions a crash in this article. Michael Waltrip's, Daryl Waltrip, no, Michael Waltrip's. Michael. Crash at Bristol in 1990. Did you look it up? Yeah. It's pretty bad. It's insane that he not only survived, like they show him right after the crash, like waving to the crowd, like, hey, I'll be at the bar. Yeah, he probably was too. Oh, I would have been. Uh, I would have been like, give me a flask right now. (laughs) This is a 1990 and it was at the Bristol track in Tennessee and um, Bristol is a, it's not, it's the one of the slowest, thankfully. Uh-huh. It's not a super speedway. It's really small. But he was going fast. Well, you're still racing cars. Right. But it's not like he was, he wasn't going like 200 miles an hour or anything like that. How fast was he going, Nina? I don't know. At Bristol, I'm going to get this wrong. I think, I mean, the top speeds are in the lower 120s and 30s. He was still going over 100 miles an hour, Maybe which is fast. I don't know. several kilometers yeah. per hour. Yeah. <laughs> and. He just stopped all of a sudden because he hit a pylon, a concrete pylon. Yeah, he hit, uh, instead of like another car that will move with you or mm-hmm. a fence that will break away, he hit something that had zero give. Now, um, something else that may have saved him, but it seems, it's so slight, it seems minimal. He actually hits the guardrail a fraction of a second before he hit the concrete. Yeah. And you see some stuff kind of come off. And again, when you look at force, that force of the collision as a budget, that spent some of that, that force when oh, those yeah. things, it takes force for those things to be thrown clear. Yeah. But it was probably just minuscule compared to the actual impact that came right after that when he hits the concrete and just, the car just disintegrates. Well, and this was in 1990 before they had done a lot of the safety uh, advances that they have today in NASCAR. And they, Ed points out in this article, like, he got lucky. Yeah. Like he shouldn't have survived that crash with the kind of cars they had in 1990. Right. He got super lucky. But yeah. even if you're not a, a car race fan and you see these wrecks on TV where the car just flies into a million pieces, that's exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Right. And every little piece of that car you see flying off is something that has kept that driver safe. It's so funny to think like before they designed cars to save you money in the shop after a wreck. <laughs> yeah. But it didn't matter because it's really just saving your estate money because you're dead. Yeah. Now it's like this is gonna this is gonna cost you a billion dollars to replace this this car. It's basically just totaled. Uh-huh. But you're fine. Right. Like that's the thinking behind crumple zones, basically. Yeah, that the a human life thinking. was more important than a, a bumper that <laughs> right. you don't have to replace. Yeah. Good move. Um, in two thousand in the eighties and nineties, um, well, actually all throughout NASCAR history up until the 2000s, um, the idea was a little more that old school approach. They wanted these cars to be rigid and stiff because they performed better and they were heavier and, and you could drive faster and hug the road and handle better. Yeah. Uh, but then in, 
in uh, 2001. And you know what's, well, it's not funny at all. I followed NASCAR one time for one season. Really? And the very first, because I had friends that did it, and I was like, it's just driving in a circle. And they're like, no, no, no. <laughs> Turning left. Just watch, Chuck. It's much more than that. Just watch. You're a smart guy. You'll get it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right. I watched the Daytona uh, 500 in 2001, mm-hmm. and that's when Dale Earnhardt died. Oh, yeah. That was the first race I ever watched. Wow. Like all the way through. Are you like, does this happen a lot? Well, I was scared. I had something to do with it. <laughs> I don't know if you did. <laughs> I don't think you're a jinx. No, but it was very sad because if you saw that wreck, it didn't appear to be that big of a deal because the car didn't fly into a million pieces. Yeah. He just kind of turned up into the wall, and all of a sudden, Dale Earnhardt's dead. Right. I going, think they even played me? like a... They played like a wah, wah sound effect before they realized, like, oh, wait, he's right. dead. Yeah, it, it was awful. So what happened in that case is he had what's called a basilar skull fracture. So Did you look these up? Yeah, I mean, this is when you're going really fast and you stop immediately. And in the case of a race car driver, their bodies are completely strapped in. Right. But their heads at the time weren't. Yeah. And your head goes forward and your body doesn't. Yeah, and the, you get a fracture, a snap, where your spinal column meets your skull. That's the basilar skull fracture. Did you look it up on Google Images? Yeah, it's awful. Man, did you see the raccoon eyes? Uh-uh. There's actually a, a – you can – if you're doing an autopsy or something, one way to, to – if the person has, like, real dark circles around their eyes and especially under their eyes, uh-huh. um, that's called raccoon eyes, and it's a symptom of basilar skull fracture. Ugh. Um, it's pretty crazy stuff. You probably shouldn't look that up because there's some really awful pictures of just dead people with raccoon eyes and the tops of their heads removed and stuff. Oh, man. Well, because that wreck, because Dale Earnhardt uh, was such a icon of the sport, uh, I mean, you know, anytime someone dies, it's a tragedy. Sure. But he was like on the Mount Rushmore of race car drivers. So for him to die in a crash, they really started taking things seriously, and um, they created what's called the Car of Tomorrow, uh-huh. which is what they've been racing in, I think, since 2008. Uh, and that is, uh, well, it's essentially just a car that's way, way, way safer. Yeah. Uh, we won't get into a, a lot of the particulars, but uh, there's more styrofoam involved, better crumple zones. Yeah, which is a big one. I think the I think it's called the Hans device is what they started wearing after that, which keeps your head attached to the seat smart so it doesn't snap forward yeah uh the drivers didn't like it as much because they couldn't look around as easily right but you know it's like a give and take with safety sure you don't want to die out there either let's put some mirrors in there <laughs> i got a rear view mirror sure we'll put a bigger one up <laughs> uh i got nothing left no nope, you got anything left it's crumble zones part of the growing auto safety suite uh, if you want to know more about crumple zones, type the word, those words into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this uh, Hundreds of Doll Heads. Did you read this one? Yeah. Hey, guys, love the show. The lead episode hit home because I work for a consumer product certification company. We test everything from guitars to pacifiers to chainsaws. And one of our responsibilities is certifying low lead content. Um, part of our federal code mandates that surface coatings, uh, paint on children's products and furniture contain no more than 90 parts per million of lead. This limit was originally 600 parts per million, but it was lowered after the lead toy panic of 2007. Remember that one? The 
The Great Lead Panic of 2007? Yeah, I do. Do you? No. Yeah, remember the Chinese toys turned up with lead in it, and everybody's like, get those things out of here. I think I slept through most of 2007. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Did you have mono? Sure. Okay. Uh, in our Trace Metals Analytics Lab, we test thousands of products every year uh, for heavy metals, uh, lead, mercury, arsenic, etc., uh, and other restricted substances. My first job at the company was to use a razor blade and physically scrape surface coatings off toys for lead testing. Uh, this job was quite tedious due to the amount of uh, scraped surface coating needed for acid digestion and chemical analysis. The early days of your podcast definitely helped. Uh, in one instance, our lab we asked uh, was asked to test uh, only the painted eyebrows of a doll. <laughs> you can imagine how little surface coating can be collected from one set of eyebrows. Due to this, I was surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of doll heads with scraped eyebrows. As you can imagine, the sights of hundreds of eyebrowless doll heads staring at you as you work is quite off-putting. With their dead eyes? Just want you to know, there were thousands of people working hard every day to ensure the products are safe for you and your families. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. And that is Matt. Thank you, Matt. Hat is off to you for what you do for a living. Thanks for keeping us all safe tucking us all in at night. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. Hang out with us on Instagram at SYSK Podcast. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 